nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. This is our moment. This is our time to put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids, to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm that fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Greetings, fellow liberals, and welcome back to another episode of Liberal Fix Radio. Today is Friday, March 29th, 2013. My name is Dan Bimrose, and even though I'm in Indiana, I'm going to change up the intro to the show because it really is broadcast from very, from four very different parts of the country. And what you may not realize is that we are not in the same room, and we never have been. We actually live in four different time zones, which makes arranging conference calls interesting. Uh, Crystal Kaiser, for example, right now is in Iowa. How's Crystal doing tonight? Well, Crystal's doing okay. She's recovering uh, from a cold. Um, new job is uh, kind of uh, kicking my butt a little bit. But, hey, I'm having a great time, and it's um, going with the trend of the economy is getting better because my job is way better than the last one I had. So, um, yeah, it's, I'm having a lot of fun um, learning a new experience and um, being treated like an adult for the first time in a long time. So it's all good. Well, that is nice. Uh, that's excellent. And Keith uh, Breckis is in Montana. Keith, what's going on? Oh, I don't know. It's uh, going pretty well here. Everything's um, nothing big going on, but I'm ready for the show, I guess. All right. Awesome. And Naomi uh, hangs out in California. Naomi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Ready for the show and very grateful that I don't live in North Dakota. And I, <laughs> I say that facetiously, but I'm very grateful that I'm not in that state right now with my three daughters and with everything that's going on in North Dakota. So I'm grateful for my blue state of California. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Uh, tonight we have a pre-recorded interview with a, a very special guest, Lad Everett, Director of Communications for the Coalition, Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. And because it is pre-recorded, I can let you in on a little secret. The interview is amazing. You're going to you're going to have to stick around and listen to it. 
Uh, every Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern, Liberal Fix brings you all the big news that occurred over the last week important to liberals. Even though we love to talk about what is going on in Washington, the Liberal Fix team is a community of individuals that live outside the Beltway. So sometimes uh, we offer a different perspective than what you might be hearing. We invite all of you to become an active contributing member of the Liberal Fix community. Crystal, how do people find us and become involved? Well, if you like what you hear, you can always join us every uh, Friday night here at uh, the Liberal Fix radio show um, by just going to www.liberalfixradio.com and you can uh, listen to it live or we also have uh, pre-recorded, it's recorded and archived and so if your schedule doesn't permit, we understand. We have lives like that as well. Um, As as Dan alluded, our conference calls are sometimes um, a little weird as far as trying to get everybody together. Um, you can also go to the iTunes store uh, where you can download the page for free. And we also encourage you to like us on Facebook at uh, Facebook uh, backslash Liberal Fix. And you can follow us on Twitter as well if you like to tweet. Um, and basically go to at the Liberal Fix um, if you want to check us out there. Great. And throughout the week, if you have any questions, comments, or topics that you would like us to discuss, you can send an email to our producer, Naomi, at naomi at liberalfixradio.com. All right. Are you guys ready to go? Let's rock yeah, it. I'm ready. All right. Great. Uh, our first news bite today that we're going to talk about, uh, the first woman was chosen to lead uh, the Secret Service. President Obama appointed Julia Pearson. 53 year old 53 years old as the first woman to ever head the secret service uh she has 30 years of experience she has a very impressive resume um it's you know it represents a big change from the high testosterone image of the secret service uh, but she has her, her work cut out for her and i wish her luck and i think she can she can pull this off and uh clean up clean well, up the I secret service a little about bit. damn time Right. <laughs> you know, it's about time that a woman was able to be given equal footing in uh, such a department. So rock on, President Obama. Absolutely. And I'm just glad that, that her appointment doesn't have to be confirmed, so we don't have to go through that crazy shenanigans and questions and more and more time wasted she's she's in. So we don't have to wait for any confirmation. So I'm happy about that. Absolutely. That is a nice plus. Um our next news bite, uh, Michigan's emergency manager law goes into effect. Um, Governor Snyder signed it in December. It took effect on Thursday. Uh, and basically what it means is uh, there's a state-appointed manager running the show, the local uh, representation, the people that people voted for. Um, they still hold their title, but they actually can't uh, say or do anything. Um and you know, of course, people are in an uproar. This is, uh, you know, if there's a lot, been a lot of talk about fascism from the other side. But if you want to know what it looks like, this is what it looks like. Uh, you don't just remove elected officials uh, because mm-hmm. you want to. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton uh, and the National Action Network uh, joined a coalition of groups, um, and they're going to file a federal lawsuit to uh, try to stop the uh, emergency manager law. Is, uh, I hope they can do something because, I mean, there's just no way. There's just no way that you should be able to have a blank check and be able to go, nope, you're out of there and we're taking over. Um, yeah, that's just, just crazy. 
Yeah, and it's not fair to the residents of Detroit who voted for a Democratic mayor and a Democratic council again um, to have a Republican governor appoint one of his cronies to run the city all by himself. I mean, this should be a democracy, and people should be allowed to pick their leaders even you know, even if the last mayor was a mistake, yes, he was a Democrat and he did some criminal things, but that doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, this right. one, um, so he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't necessarily mismanaged the city and he should have a chance. I mean, David Bing, as far as I know, is, is, has been a competent mayor uh, given the situation that he inherited and he hasn't, as far as I know, stolen anything, so he should give a chance to run it. I could understand getting Kwame Kilpatrick out of there, but now that they have somebody new, seems like a funny time to have the Republicans take over the city. And, and in the other cities that it's been, it, it, the emergency managers haven't done an, any better job than the people that were there. They haven't shown a track record of success, so it's just disturbing to me. But. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I've said this many times. I don't know why uh, heads in Michigan aren't exploding over this uh, right now. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm sure there are, but... Uh, it just seems seems nuts that this type of thing uh, can happen. Um, you know, you remember the original Tea Party, the whole no taxation without representation thing. These guys uh, voted; they don't, and they no longer have local representation. Um, so I'm guessing that they shouldn't have to pay local taxes. Mm, yeah. Isn't that, way it, isn't that the way it works? I don't know. Yeah, I'd say yeah. get get a bunch of tea and throw it in the Michigan Bay. <laughs> you know, um, put it in Lake Michigan. Well, or yeah, I mean, it's I'm on the wrong road. Yeah, coast, yeah, it's just it's just one of those. I mean, you just it does. It seems like an onion, you know, story. You know, it just doesn't seem like it is possible for that type of action to take place in our country um, mm-hmm. and be legal. And and mm-hmm. I don't know how this cannot be unchallenged based on that. I mean, right. I if I lived in Michigan, I would be throwing a royal fit. There's just, I mean. It's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Imagine if a Democratic governor had done that. That's just, uh, oh, oh, the right wing would be up in arms. The government take over this and that. Right. You know, we got to stockpile mm-hmm. guns, whatever, you know. Um, mm-hmm. so. Right. Yeah, just uh, nuts, and we'll be watching and see what goes on in Michigan uh, in the future. Uh, our next story, if you're on Facebook, I am sure you've seen something about this, the uh, Monsanto Protection Act. Uh, it was signed into into law uh, on March 26th by the president. Uh, it was added to a short-term spending bill, uh, basically in order to keep the government funded. If uh, if uh, the president wanted to do that, he had to acknowledge or sign this as well. Um, and basically, uh, what this does is it deregulates genetically modified organisms, uh, and it grants uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture the authority to override any judicial ruling stopping the planting of such crops. Uh, And people are uh, exploding (laughs) over this. It's uh, been huge news all week. Um, Yeah, I don't, I mean, I I know that, well, of course, I'm on Facebook a lot, and I see a lot of the, you know, the mosquito, the you know, a lot of the Montito stuff. And, you know, to me, I, I guess I need to uh, investigate a little bit more before I can formulate an opinion. Now, from what my my understanding of it is, is that it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because this particular company develops hybrids of different seeds. Um, and then they also 
uh, on the other end of the spectrum, develop, uh, you know, fertilizers and also, you know, um, different types of sprays and things like that to kill insects and things like that. So it's like our food is being bombarded with all these different things and there's really no accountability. And I guess that's the part that, that kind of disturbs me is the fact that you would think the FDA would have some say in what sort of things are being added to our food um, and some regulatory capabilities there. And like I said, I need to, um, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm just trying to, people, yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. And um, there's been quite a few actual Facebook pages um, that have said, you know, kind of calm the, you know, the F down (laughs) people you know, sort of deal, and so I, I'm, I just haven't really formulated an opinion, an educated opinion on it. Um, to a certain so the one degree. thing, the one thing that I think um, that is a little bit misleading is people on Facebook are saying, "Well, Obama signed the Monsanto Protection Act." Well, there's a couple of things a little bit misleading on it. Not that I'm saying I'm in favor of this particular rider. I'm not. I mean, I think there's some issues with it, but it's a biotech rider. It's not technically the Monsanto Protection Act. They just might be among many companies that would benefit, as would Archer Daniels, Midland, and some other. But what, what people need to understand, though, is, is it was inserted in there probably by, by Senator Roy Blunt, although it's anonymously inserted. But I know Montana's senator, Democratic Senator John Tester, was really upset about the rider being in there because he's an organic farmer, and he, you know, he obviously sees this as a problem because it's helps agribusiness. But the one thing I should point out is uh, is the president doesn't have a line item veto. So if Obama mm-hmm. would not have signed this entire bill, of which this was one section of it, of the spending bill, then the government would have shut down and there would be no spending bill. And then uh, a lot of people would be out of work and there would be all kinds of consequences uh, from the sequester and then some. And so then the same people on the left who are criticizing him for signing this would be saying, oh, well, Barack Obama didn't go to bat for the American worker. Look, he's letting them lay off. He's, you know, he's letting the Republicans push him around with the spending bill, and now he's not even funding the government. And so everything's shutting down. The government's shutting down. The national parks are shutting down, and people are being laid off work. And so, um, so it's a poison pill piece in the sense that whether Obama signs it or not, um, it's a bad deal. I mean, there is no good alternative. He has two options. He can either sign it refuse to sign it, but there is no third option where he can strike out the rider and sign the bill, which is what people would want him to do, or at least what progressives would want. But but, but because of the way our appropriations or our legislative process works, people are allowed to, ins- allowed to insert garbage into any bill, and then you, you, know, mm-hmm. you get, either got to take the bill as is because the people in the Senate didn't do their job in striking the amendment. In fact, right. unfortunately, Barbara Mikulski, who's the chair of the committee that could have done something. I mean, shes I don't know if she's phoned it in. She used to be a pretty good senator in Maryland, but it seems like she's asleep at the wheel now, and she, she let it go through there, even though the Democrats have a Senate majority, and I don't know all the parliamentary details. But the only thing I'm, you know, I'm not defending necessarily what the president did. I'm just pointing out that no matter what he did, it was a raw deal. So, so I wouldn't lay this one at his feet as much as, say, something like the drones or something where he has much more control over policy than on this particular piece of legislation. So I think there's been a little bit of sensationalism 
among some on the left to say, oh, well, this is a total sellout. It, it may be a little catastrophizing about what the bill does, too, because, I, you know, I, I have reservations about genetically modified food, but we've been genetically modifying a lot of crops for a long time, and not all of them are Franken crops. I mean, some of them are, but, but you know, some of them are, are things that have actually maybe done some good, too. I mean, it's not an unambiguous evil as it's sometimes portrayed. Right, and, and we and don't even, need to be right, even as if the, reactionary even if the, as the Even right. if the president were to sign it, that doesn't mean Congress would, would fund it. I mean, no matter who's, who's president, Congress still controls the money and who makes the laws, and they are, you know, still after President Obama just because they're upset with him. So even if he signed it, that doesn't mean that it, you know, would have been funded. So it's, it, it is really a kind of a darn if he does and darn if he doesn't. Um, but at least he, if he, I think if he hadn't signed it, it would have been just a huge, another uproar. But he signed it and hopefully um, the people that are behind it, I think it's called um, Food Democracy Now. They're trying to help, they're trying to get uh, the American public behind that, behind their group to try and get um, something else passed that can help um, either with President Obama signing a statement or an executive order to label the food. So if it's going to be genetically engineered, then they want it to be labeled as such. So right. we'll have to wait and see. It's a story that still this will still unfold. It's not over. I guess, yeah, I mean, I guess the good thing is that I guess from what I take from this is that, you know, trying to look at the, the glass half full, I'm glad that people are paying attention. It's kind of nice. You know, whether, it, you know, there's a fine line before, between being, you know, overreactionary as and kind of taking on the the characteristics of the right in some of the stuff, um, but let's be factual when we do it. That that's what we how we can differentiate differentiate ourselves from the right wing as far as that goes. And you know, liberals are just as passionate, and we get you know kicked in the rear because we are. But let's be factual about what we're doing. That's my only warning per se as far as that goes and you know i'm glad that people are paying attention and you know if that's brought to the head good bad or indifferent at least maybe we can stem what may come out of it otherwise you know it could have been one of those things that we didn't hear about for years to come well they they definitely are are paying attention and there's just been an explosion of information out there and i think you know i'm going to wait a couple of days and try to sift through it and and try to figure it all out uh, but, yeah, there's definitely a lot of information out there right now. Um, our last uh, news bite, uh, fittingly, before we get into the interview um, with Vlad Everett, uh, President Obama met with 21 mothers who are working to combat gun violence in, in America at the White House. And um, it's been a very short time since the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. And it seems like uh, the momentum is waning, um, and, and mm-hmm. President Obama implored all of us to not forget. Uh, I could quote him, but I think we've got the yep, uh, we've got him on. Tape. We've got him uh, on. Yep, yeah, we do. And it's 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 a very poignant um, piece, and and I honestly believe that it's something that that's what the right is hoping that we'll just get tired of it because we're not, and we we can't lose the momentum and we can't uh, let it um, be pushed aside. Um, and I think President Obama summed it up pretty well. The notion that two months or three months after something as horrific as what happened in Newtown happens and we've moved on to other things, 
That's not who we are. That's not who we are. And I want to make sure every American is listening today. Less than 100 days ago that happened. And the entire country was shocked. And the entire country pledged we would do something about it and this time would be different. Shame on us if we've forgotten. Now's the time to turn that heartbreak into something real. It won't solve every problem. There will still be gun deaths. There will still be tragedies. There will still be violence. There will still be evil. But we can make a difference if not just the activists here on this stage, but the general public, including responsible gun owners, say, you know what? We, 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 we can do better than this. We can do better to make sure that fewer parents have to endure the pain of losing a child to an act of violence. That's what this is about. And enough people like Katrina and Corey and the rest of the parents who are here today get involved. And if enough members of Congress take a stand for cooperation and common sense and lead and don't get squishy because time has passed and maybe it's not on the news every single day. If that's who we are, if that's our character, that we're willing to follow through on commitments that we say are important, commitments to each other and to our kids, then I'm confident we can make this country a safer place for all of them. Very well said. And and I love the, the I mean, the pauses, you're almost like, is he done? And um, But I think he had to. For whatever he was saying, he had to let it all kind of sink in. And I it, it uh, gives me goosebumps when I listen to him talk about this. Um, and I just hope that our senators and our Congress people um, take heed to what he said. I doubt it. Uh, those that are against it are always going to be against it. But, you know, it's it's one of those deals. And like I said, it's a perfect lead-in to our conversation with Lad Everett. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope I hope uh I hope none of us uh forget. But uh let's wrap up the news bite uh, portion of our show and move on to the interview. Actually before we get to the interview, if you're a regular listener, you know that our guest last week, Chris Hellman for the National Priorities Project, had to leave the show a little early uh because of a family situation and I do want to update you on that situation. I'm happy to say that uh Chris Hellman's wife is doing just fine and we're all here very happy uh to hear that news. Now, to this week's interview, Lad Everett uh, is with the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, and he gives one hell of an interview, and one I think you uh, will enjoy. Enough talking about it, though. Uh, let's uh, let's go to the Lad Everett interview. Uh, we would like to welcome a very special guest. I suspect most of our listeners watch MSNBC from time to time, and on occasion you may have seen Lad Everett, Director of Communications for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Lad, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. Oh, that's great. Uh, we feel very fortunate to be sitting down right now at this moment and, and having this conversation during a time when there's so much potential for change out there. Uh, for those who don't know, could you fill them on what 
fill them in on what your organization does and, and what you are, are trying to accomplish? Sure, yeah. Uh, we we are one of the older gun violence prevention organizations in the country. We were founded in 1974, uh, around the same time that the Brady Campaign was also founded. Um, and, you know, we have a basic mi- mission to reduce gun death and, and gun injury in this country. We were originally founded uh, uh, actually in the Uni- under the United Methodist Church umbrella as a coalition of religious organizations. We have grown since that time to include other types of organizations like civic organizations, children welfare, groups concerned with uh, urban violence. And, uh, you know, what, what we're very focused on now, uh, obviously, in the wake of Newtown is uh, this package of gun reform proposals that President Obama uh, has offered and which are currently uh, being debated in our Senate. And uh, we are very focused on getting a strong package of reforms uh, out of the Senate and hopefully over to the House uh, for consideration. Great, great. Now, there, there seems to be, a, like, I think, a big disconnect between what the people on the right, namely NRA, uh, say that, that everybody on the other side wants and what they actually want, or maybe even a, a better word is to say what people expect. Uh, obviously, you're no, you're na- the name of your organization is not the coalition to take people's guns away. and it, That's not what you expect at, at this time, is that correct? I mean, how can yeah, you look- that disconnect? Well, you know, I, I I think one of the real shames of this issue is that the NRA has been able to make so many Americans think about this issue in absolutist terms. Um, you know, when we step back a minute and think about any other issue we care about, you know, whether that's the environment or health care or women's rights or whatever it is, you know, I, I, I think we can appreciate that in America, you know, the legislation that we enact in this country is not absolutist. Uh, you know, we make we we make changes along the margins, and and we sit down and we compromise, and we meet somewhere in the middle on important issues and work out compromises that can you know, for, in, in terms of this issue, simultane- simultaneously respect uh, you know uh, someone who who uh, prides himself in firearms ownership or, or who feels that is an important component of his day to day life but also which protects public safety. And I think the NRA has brainwashed people into thinking about this issue in an incredibly unhealthy way, basically trying to convince them that uh, the only two options are on the table are to somehow totally ban all guns or do nothing whatsoever to prevent people like Jared Loeffner and James Holmes and Adam Lanza from getting guns. And that's just, it's asinine. It's insulting to people's intelligence, and it's not the way we address any issue in this country, in the history of our country. No, it hasn't. Uh, it's not the way it's certainly worked in the past. Uh, and if it's going to work, we're going to have to sit down and have that conversation. Yeah, and it does seem like there's a pragmatic um, <laughs> a point uh, between the two extremes, which probably right now is closer to more regulations than what we have. Currently, if you look at polling data and stuff, even even NRA members, if you take out the leadership and the crazy people like Ted Nugent and stuff who speak for them, you, you see a lot of NRA members support background checks, and they're somewhat evenly divided on things like assault weapons bans or other things, and, and certainly the general public. So um, it seems like there's a solution there that the public would approve of that somewhere between the two extremes. And, and what types of uh, legislation are you working on right now? I know I know right now the of course the assault weapons ban is going before the Senate, like you said. Is there other things that you're trying to get implemented? Well I think I think the highest priority for all gun violence prevention groups right now is universal background checks. 
And, you know, you just mentioned that, you know, even among uh, rank-and-file NRA members, there's there's are strong degrees of support for many of these measures. And one of them is for universal background checks, where three out of four NRA members support requiring background checks on all gun sales. Uh, one of the dramatic uh, loopholes in, in our gun laws that really should have been fixed decades ago is the fact that in 40 or more states, you can still buy guns through private sales without undergoing any background check and where no records of sale are kept. So there's no paper trail for law enforcement to follow when these guns end up at crime scenes. Uh, that's just, that's crazy. And, you know, we these background checks now, which are instant computer checks, about 90% of them are done in two or three minutes. So this is not burdensome. It's not tough. We live in an information age where even teenagers have instant technology in their pockets. Uh, it's long past time that we got that done. And uh, if you look overall in terms of polling on that issue, 92% of Americans support requiring background checks on all gun sales. Then there are yeah, certain, why would you uh, be uh, there, against it? <laughs> well, there, there's I no, mean, I mean, what the is the argument reason, against it? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked that. The argument against it deals with, with really what has become the core and, and very radical ideology that underlies the pro-gun movement, and that's what we call the insurrectionist idea. And it's this idea, basically, that uh, supposedly, under the Second Amendment, individuals have a right to basically shoot and kill government officials when they personally believe that our government has become, quote-unquote, tyrannical. Um, uh, if you want to get a chill up your spine uh, about that sometime, Google Obama tyranny and see how many people uh, now think that things like the Affordable Care Act are tyrannical. So uh, that's a real problem. And and if you embrace this insurrectionist idea and, and, and essentially view your own government as an enemy and, and, view, and view basically the planning of treason as patriotic, then you will consider any gun law, no matter how modest in scope, as uh, a potential threat to you. Uh, you know, because basically the idea that the NRA has tried to sell people for decades is that um, the government wants to know what guns you have so it can essentially plan for war with you, can plan to know whose door to go to to, I guess, kick down and forcibly take your guns and then supposedly, I don't know what the next step is, enslave you, put you in FEMA camps, uh, whatever comes yeah. after that. And, you know, it, it's laughable, but the sad part is it's really become the core idea uh, underlying the pro-gun movement. And there was, there was a remarkable exchange the other day in, in, in one of the Senate hearings on gun violence between Senator Dick Durbin and Wayne LaPierre, the, the NRA CEO, where LaPierre basically admitted that point blank. Durbin asked him up front, he said, I'm hearing from a lot of your members that, uh, that I'm getting it wrong on the Second Amendment, and it's not about, you know, even – uh, self-defense against criminals. It's about being able to go to war with uh, our military, with police, and with the government if they become tyrannical. And, and LaPierre said, yeah, you, you, you basically have that right. So, uh, you know, this is something that we really need to be cognizant of, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about this issue. Speaking of yeah, talking sorry. about this issue, um, I was just going to say, I, I deal with a lot of I don't think I've ever witnessed, other than the health care debate, I don't think I've ever witnessed as much anger and nastiness as I have over this topic, whether it be on the social mediums as far as that goes. And um, first of all, I'd kind of like you, if you could, speak to why you think this has made people so 
angry and nasty and vile. I mean, I've, I've we've we've whenever we've posted anything on our Facebook about gun control or anything like that, that's when the trolls come out. And um, and secondly, um, you know, why do you feel that this type of in, in general speaking, how do we how do we curb those ludicrous arguments um, as far as kind of controlling the narrative, as far as what I think, you know, yeah, I think we're I think we're starting to do that. I, I you know I think I think the beauty of uh, you know the, what happened in Newtown is horrific, and there's nothing that can ever heal those wounds or make that tragedy right. It's something that never should have happened. Um, but you know, in the wake of that tragedy, I think there is a, a very robust national conversation happening. That's really beginning to shine light on a lot of these radical and treasonous arguments and, 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 and where some of these radical views are beginning to be crowded out. I, I think the way that you overcome them is, you know, we, for so long we've treated these arguments as serious arguments, um, and they're not. And I think a lot of this, too, stems from the fact that as Americans we, we, we funda- fundamentally don't understand our history. And I'll give you an example of that. For example, you know, the Tea Party in this country has been able to portray themselves as defenders of the Constitution. Well, you know, e- even a kid who's in grade school studying American History 101 understands that the men who drafted our Constitution were Federalists. Okay, They were people who believed that the only way to preserve our union was by strengthening our federal government, not by weakening it, by significantly strengthening its powers, and that's exactly what they did through the Constitution. So when you have people who preach hate against our government, who distrust our government, who through every policy they are advocating are trying to diminish and weaken its powers, portraying themselves as 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 champions of the Constitution, and being allowed to do that, you have something fundamentally broken in the public discourse. Uh, I, I think we need to understand our history better. Uh, I think we need to address arguments that are just simply mad as such and not treat them as reasonable arguments. Uh, and I think that's happening now. I, I think it's happening because in this post-Newtown moment, moment, the entire country is now involved in this dialogue. Everybody is yeah, becoming educated about this issue. They're seeing the things that NRA board member Ted Nugent is saying, that Wayne LaPierre is saying. There's nowhere for them to hide anymore. And I think you're right about the Constitution because uh, the tendency is for the uh, uh, the gun rights people or stuff to cite that. But, of course, the Constitution was designed to strengthen the federal government. I mean, those people support the Articles of Confederation, not the Constitution. And, and of course, one reason the Second Amendment was put in there, a lot of what the Founding Fathers were afraid of is another Shays' Rebellion. So they wanted a well-regulated militia to stop citizen armed uprisings or to have, have the ability to do it. So they've almost turned the Second Amendment on its head because a lot oh, of yeah. the Founders were concerned about Shays' Rebellion and, and, and other rebellions like that, later the Whiskey, Whiskey Rebellion, which George Washington put down by force. And so so they have turned it into, oh, yeah, the Founding Fathers wanted a bunch of insurrectionists because they take a few quotes out of con, context. You know, Jefferson said this or so-and-so said this. And, right, and they, right. But the history of it, it, it's all selective. I mean, it's revisionist history. They're making stuff up as they go. <laughs> just 
you know, so I mean, I pretty much, yeah. I mean, look at the Constitution itself. It's like you said, you know, look at Article 1, Section 8. It says the purpose of the militia is to, quote-unquote, suppress insurrections, right? Not to foment right. them, but to, yeah, but to like to. you said, like with the whiskey and shays, to put them down. And then the only crime, of course, that's de defined in the Constitution is treason. treason. So, you know, this, this notion that because they had fought a British monarchy that would not grant them legislative representation, that therefore they wanted people to fight the democratic government they themselves established, is just insane. And, and again, I think this... This is a problem that goes way beyond the gun issue. It, it, it really speaks to the fact that the progressive movement as a whole has allowed this to happen. We've allowed them to basically claim ownership of our founding documents. People who hate our government allowed them to claim owner, ownership of our founding documents and have not contested that. So I think, you know, again, getting back to the original question, I think the way you begin to push back on that is to say, you know what, that's nonsense. It's treason, not patriotism. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. Now, yeah, no, it is. Yeah, I agree. Um, a lot of the focus is what's going on at, at the federal level. I mean, what uh, – but we uh, – you know, sometimes the change begins at the state level. Um I know New York. I mean, what what other uh, what other states are being proactive as far as gun gun control goes? Well, there's quite a few. I mean, it's remarkable how many states are now doing positive things. I mean, it extends to states that you would consider a usual suspects, like Connecticut and Maryland and New York, as you mentioned, in California. But then, you know, we recently saw really good votes in in the Colorado and New Mexico uh, uh, houses, where they approved a number of of positive gun violence prevention reforms. So. Um, it's it's really nationwide right now. I mean, you're going to have some tough, real tough states like, let's say, a Louisiana or Mississippi or Alaska, where it's probably going to take a little while to to reach a point where we can do positive things. But I mean, in in key swing states and states that are still considered largely red states, we're seeing progress. So um, I, I think change. I see change through the seat that you know that I'm in happening at all levels. I see it happening in Congress, and I see it happening in states across the country. Right, and it's great in the congressional uh, congressional election that's going off in, in Chicago. There's um, a lot of pushback as far as you know, people that are in the race that are for gun rights, as opposed to people that would get an F rating from the NRA. And I mean, that's uh, that's a big change. Of course, you're talking about a metropolitan area, but. Uh, the idea I live uh, per personally in in southeastern Indiana, very rural, uh, something like that would would never happen. But in an area like that, you're you're actually seeing some some big pushback on on somebody that would get an A rating from the NRA, and that's uh, I think that's a huge yeah. uh, huge change. Well, there's a reason for that, and it, and it's another one of the fundamental transformational things with this issue, and that's it's because we now have money on our side in political races. And that's a very new phenomenon. That dates back actually to, to just November with the November election where Mayor Bloomberg, who's active in Illinois, which you referred to, stood up a new PAC, his Independence USA PAC, and he very actively went after NRA lackeys and tried to run them out of office. And he had uh, a great deal more success through his PAC than the NRA did with its. The, the NRA's primary PAC got the worst return on investment of any PAC in the country, 0.8%. Uh, meanwhile, Bloomberg was taking out guys like Joe Baca, who have carried the NRA's water for years. So, um, you know, I, this, there's a very new equation here. In the past, 
you'd be able to basically, uh, you know, take your marching orders from the NRA and, and, and cash their checks, and you would never have to worry about money on the other side, right? You could basically say, well, I can screw these people who want safer communities and better gun laws and get away with it. You know, they're not going to put money up in my races. Well, now you've got Bloomberg's Independence USA PAC, and you also have Gabby Gifford's Americans for Responsible Solutions PACs, and they are raising millions. So um, there's there's a new game in town. And folks who think that they can endanger our families and basically do what the NRA tells them are going to have to think twice. And Illinois is just the most recent example of that. Yeah, and I think of that race now, I mean, we don't know yet because it'll be Tuesday, but it looks to me like all the momentum is on Robin Kelly's side and that her F rating from NRA will be decisive in that race and the fact that Bloomberg helped out and stuff. But, I mean, one of the other candidates dropped out because she had – um, filled out the questionnaire for the NRA a couple years ago and put answers that they wanted to hear. <laughs> so she was kind of like, well, I think this is going to do me in, so I'm going to throw my support for her rather than continue and soldier on. And so now Debbie Halverson, who has the A rating from the NRA, is probably fighting a losing battle against Robin Kelly, who has the F, because that's a more popular position, particularly in that area. But even in swing districts, I think um, – you know, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that anymore. It used to be the NRA people would see that as, as an asset. Now I think uh, being aligned too closely with them as a political liability, except for maybe in the most um, conservative parts of Oklahoma or, or Louisiana or something, maybe it's not yet. But I think in the swing districts where the races are competitive, you actually don't want to be on the NRA's side of that equation anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, you know what's so fascinating about it is that it it really only takes a little bit of money. Uh, when you look at the overall sums that Bloomberg spent in November, it really wasn't that much money. And in, in, in Illinois, where Bloomberg's you know has basically been able to make guns the issue of that campaign, which and it wasn't before. Let's be clear. I mean, he did that. It's been very little money. It's not a huge buy. Um, I, I I think the dynamic for a long time has been that. There are a lot of politicians who have basically gone along with the NRA, but they really don't want to, right? They've been looking for a long time, I think, for a little bit of political cover to do the right thing. And we've heard that many times behind the scenes in meetings with, with elected officials. And I think now when you put up a little bit of money, when you give them a little bit of grassroots energy in their district on this issue, they'll do the right thing. You know, I, I think many of these many of these men and women are disgusted by some of the votes they've had to take, and I'm not I'm not excusing the way they voted. You know, I, I'm still maybe uh, naive and idealistic enough to think that politicians should vote based on principle, and I do hope that we eventually move to that era. You know, but but you know, again, this is this is about hardball politics, and with Bloomberg in the game, with Gabby Giffords in the game, it's just a whole new story. Really, it's it's just remarkable. Yeah, it's definitely a, a dynamic environment out there as far as this goes. Now, a lot of people are concerned, uh, you know, they feel like access to mental health uh, services in the community. What are you guys doing? What is your uh, feelings about that? Are you doing anything as far as, you know, promoting, you know, some type of increased access to, to mental health services? Well, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've, I've often said that if there's anything as archaic as our gun laws, it's, it's, it's our mental health treatment system in this country. But I think it's, I think it's very important to understand why so many severely mentally ill shooters have been able to legally gain access to guns. 
Uh, and the reason for that is because the standard for mental health in terms of what would disqualify you uh, to buy guns under federal law has not been updated since 1968. And the only two categories of mentally ill Americans who would be prohibited from buying guns are those who have been involuntarily committed to institutions, basically forced to go in, and those who have been formally adjudicated by a court as quote-unquote mental defectives, a, a, a totally outdated and offensive term you would never use in polite company today. The problem with that is that in the overall universe of, mental, of dangerously mentally ill Americans, very few fall under one of those two narrow categories. So what we've seen as a result is you see shooters like Jared Loeffner, for example, or James Holmes, who many people in their community knew were dangerously mentally ill or substance abusers or something else, and yet they are able to go into gun stores and on multiple occasions pass background checks without the gun dealer seeing anything about their mental health history. So what we need to do here, what we've needed to do for a long time, is go back to the table and redefine what that standard should be. We are basically wasting 45 years of research since 1968 that, would, that better helps us understand uh, mental illness and who is likely to be violent or engage in violent behavior based on a given mental illness. We're just we're ignoring that. And it's and it's and it's totally it's it, it, it the, the standard we have now is nondescript. It's not descriptive. It's arbitrary. And let's be perfectly fair here. There could be people who were involuntarily committed, who were then treated for their mental illness, who have improved and can safely own guns. Right? It works yeah. both ways. But we have but a I standard think... right now that's just it's just random. It doesn't adequately. It's not telling us who's likely to be a threat to public safety. Right, I think the biggest problem with it is is nowadays the people who are arguing will say, well, after somebody commits a shooting, they'll say, oh, well, this person was mentally ill. You know, the pro-gun people say they shouldn't have had a gun anyways. But if you can't predict it until after the tragedy happens, sure, it's easy to look backwards and say, well, there were signs. But if, if those signs don't create actionable intelligence that can keep them from getting a gun, you can't say it after the fact. I mean, that's one of my problems with the NRA's argument about law-abiding citizens carrying guns because a lot of the people that do the shootings are law-abiding citizens until they pull the trigger, <laughs> and then they pull it 15 or 20 times. Well, um, you know, so it's kind of a false dichotomy because a law-abiding citizen today becomes a criminal tomorrow unless there's a way that you can keep people with mental health issues from doing something like that. Otherwise, you have to do something about restricting access to those kind of high-capacity magazines and stuff because you can't you can't just use it after the fact and say, well, the person was a criminal if they have no criminal record before the fact or when they purchased the gun. So I don't know. I mean, how do you address some of those arguments that sort of stock NRA arguments like, well, it, it punishes law-abiding gun owners or guns don't kill people, people kill people. I, I mean, other than, like you said, some of them are ridiculous arguments. But. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, first of all, you know, there's, there's, a, there's obvious hypocrisy when Wayne LaPierre stands at a podium and says the answer is creating a national database of all mentally ill Americans, right? When this is a guy who's fought for decades to prevent us from creating any database, sure. national database of gun purchasers, right? So, I mean, it's just, it's asinine. But, you know, look, the bottom line here is that we have a standard that's outdated, it's arbitrary. It doesn't go in and actually look if someone has a propensity for violent behavior. Let's be perfectly clear. The standard we have now is unfair 
to Americans struggling with mental health issues. We need to have a more accurate standard, again, that's looking at, based on your mental illness, are you more likely to engage in violent behavior? Have you demonstrated violent behavior? Have you indicated you are, you are going to engage in violent behavior? That's the type of thing we should be looking at. Sure. You know, the NRA has created a system of gun purchasing in this country that is like, you know, it's it's at hell-bent speed to get that gun sold as quickly as possible, right? That's why they fought for an instant check system that eradicated what was originally a waiting period for handgun purchases in the original Brady Law, okay? We're at a point in this country right now where it might be important to slow down just a bit to make sure that we are selling guns to people who are indeed law-abiding and responsible. And it's not, it's not just the, the, the problem of mental illness. Let's be clear here. You could have a violent misdemeanor conviction rap sheet a mile long and stockpile as many handguns and assault rifles as you want legally. You could, be, you could have been under 10 prior domestic abuse restraining orders, and as long as they're not active right now, you don't have an active one, you can stockpile as many handguns and assault rifles as you want. Our gun laws are nuts. And we, again, we have not really updated them. There's been one update to the disqualified category since 1968, and that prohibits people who have misdemeanor convictions for domestic violence uh, from buying guns. But very few states, or not enough states, have that law in the books to even enforce it. Um, we need to go back to the table, again, using all this research we've had in the intervening 45 years, and define better standards as to who should not be buying guns based on whether we have research indicating that they are more likely to be violent based on past behavior. We have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, so what, I'm sorry. Go ahead, um, I, I just had a, a question. Um, what do you think are the chances, as you know, we haven't had anyone basically leave the, uh, you know, uh, the ATF um, for quite some time, and I believe I, I noticed it was like back in, um, I think, oh, where was it, like 1970-something like that as far as somebody that, you know, because it's been kind of hindered and because, you know, this isn't a position that Obama can't appoint, even recess, because I believe it's the Patriot Act or something like that. It requires a two-thirds vote of Congress in order to nominate someone like that. And, you know, Obama did announce that um, he wanted uh, Todd Jones to head the ATF, what do you think the chances are of us finally getting someone to lead that organization? Well, look, I mean, let's be clear here. This is another thing that the NRA purposely did to block confirmation uh, of a future ATF director. Up until 2006, um, the president was able to appoint a director for the ATF. It was not a, a position which had to be confirmed by the Senate. In 2006, the NRA pushed for for new legislative language that would require Senate confirmation. Uh, not coincidentally, since that time, no one has been able to be confirmed for that right. position, and that of, that of course includes people, uh, you know, uh, candidates that President Bush nominated for that position. Um, I hope, and, and again, I think this has to do with the, the more robust national conversation and the fact that so many more Americans are now aware of this, that in this post-Newtown era, we will be able to get that done. Um, that's my hope, and and I and I think you will see a hard push for that. I know Obama has talked about, you know, well, of course he's talked about getting gun violence survivors' votes, and I know that he's talking more there about things like background checks and assault weapons. 
But I think part of that package too with this new with this push has to be the ATF needs leadership. And there's been some really good um investigative reporting coming out challenging the NRA's notion that um the problem is we are not enforcing existing gun laws. And there's been some great investigative reporting done by a number of uh, different media outlets really exposing what an absolute sham that is and that and that no one has done more to hinder and in some case eradicate law enforcement functions in terms of enforcing gun laws in the NRA. And that includes, of course, decades of, of efforts on their part to diminish the authority and resources of the ATF. Yeah, I mean... Uh, obviously, there, there's a lot of a lot of changes that, that need to be made. We need somebody to head the ATF. There, we need some uh, changes in the mental health system. Uh, we need some common, and, and it all amounts to common sense solutions. You know, we got to take some common sense steps. And I think that's what frustrates many of us is this: we're not asking for much here, or what what we would think uh, anybody would think is, is much. You know, we just want to know that uh, when we go out of our house, when our kids go to school, that we're safe. You know. The answer can't be everybody get a gun. I, I should be able to walk out of my house without a gun and feel safe. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's so there's so many beautiful words that have been said recently about, um, you know, the, the 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 most basic and inalienable of rights, which is, uh, you know, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the president has spoken eloquently on that. There was a remarkable piece of testimony given the other week by David Wheeler, who lost his six-year-old son at Newtown. Who, who basically said, you know, whatever right you think you have to own an AR-15 assault rifle, it is second to the right of my son to his life. It is second to the right of all of our children to their safety and their lives. And he's right on. And, and he concluded that, that testimony by saying, you know, it's time to honor our founding documents and get our priorities straight. And I couldn't say it better myself. That's exactly where we are right now. We have allowed extremists who hate our government to pervert the meaning of our founding documents and to put our families in danger on a daily basis based on some warped principle of them wanting to go to war with our government. This, it's just sick. Um, and you know I, what it will take is I, I think there's a social norming aspect here, and this gets back to a question that we we were talking about a minute ago. But you know there's a social norming aspect here where Americans just have to stand up and say, you know what, this is demented. This this has nothing to do with patriotism or 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 things that basically are American values. You know, it has nothing to do with that. And I and I think again, I think that's that's the path that we're now walking on. And I think it's healthy for our country. Right. And uh, on that note, I mean, I I, I hope all of my listeners uh, ponder you know everything that you just said. But un unfortunately, we run out of time. We got to in 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 the interview. Lad, where do people go to find out more about the coalition to stop gun violence? Uh, they can go to our website, www.csgv.org, and I would really love to have your uh, your listeners come to our Facebook page, uh, Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, and join the conversation there. It would be great to have their voices. Great interview. I mean, the guy just, I mean, we could have probably spent days talking to him. He was, he was an awesome, awesome guest, and we here at Liberal Fix thank him immensely for joining us pre-recorded or not absolutely definitely an impressive interview you know he's got a wonderful command of the facts obviously he's passionate about what he believes in and and i hope uh i hope we don't we don't forget it It has not been that long ago guys uh this is still important mm -hmm. 
Now, our major news story, uh, we're not going to have much time for. We did run a little little long in the beginning, but we do want to talk about it a little bit. We may run the show long, a couple minutes. Uh, it's not uh, it's not really relevant to gun safety, but it does uh, cause the same amount of passion, uh, regardless of which side you fall on. Uh, and, of course, I'm talking about the, the uh, case that's being heard uh, before the Supreme Court right now concerning uh, California's Prop 8, uh, their gay marriage ban out in California. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of, you know, some of the arguments made for and behalf, there's been a lot of uh, talk about it, and uh, it's it's really... You know, everybody's Facebook is lit up in red with uh, the equal sign. It seems like, uh, and everybody's uh, everybody's putting down their their foot on uh, one side or the other. Um, mm-hmm. We don't know exactly. Of course, nobody knows what what way the court is going to rule uh, on this, uh, and we won't know until they decide to let us know. Um, well, yeah, unless we get a curveball uh, thrown at us, kind of like we did with the health care debate, but it basically looks like that Justice Kennedy will be the deciding factor um, unless Alito comes around um, as far as that goes. But, um, yeah, I mean, the same arguments, it's the same SSDD um, as far as the reason why we should keep DOMA. Um, and um, it's, it's <laughs> I mean, I just don't, know how much longer the public you know it's, it's again it's much like the gun uh question with background checks and things like that when you know 80 percent 60 percent anyway you know the upper percentiles agree that same-sex marriage should be allowed and um so i just don't know how much how longer these tiresome arguments are going to hold water um but they're trying they're definitely trying. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's revealing, too, that uh, arguing the case for gay marriage now is the combined team of the both the Bush and Gore lawyers and Bush versus Gore. So, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. so, so some of the best legal minds in the country and people that were former solicitor generals are fighting on one side, and on the other side is sort of an obscure attorney trying to fight the other side. And, and I think it's true that it's hard to predict what will happen. We learned from the health care debate, you know, Jeffrey Tubin said health care was dead on CNN, now infamously, and then Justice Roberts sided with, you know, in favor of right. Obamacare, and people were shocked. But I think there's a number of outcomes that could happen, and probably the least likely thing is for them to completely strike down gay marriage in every state or to approve of it in every state. What's more likely is probably, uh, it looks like Kennedy is, um, appears supportive so i think doma's in trouble and as far as the prop 8 thing even if they sort of kick it back and say they're not going to hear it or that it only applies to california of the five possibilities that the court could rule four of them would at least allow gay marriage in california and then whether they want to go more far-reaching than that we'll have to see but it's it's hard to imagine kennedy going on the side right now of of striking down um gay marriage in the state of california now the court might want to try to narrow the ruling so it only applies to there and not extend it beyond. But but it looks fairly promising at this point that something good will come out of it, maybe even if it, it doesn't legalize it in every all the states, it might legalize it at least, the very least in California, and possibly if they equate civil unions and gay marriage, it would add about seven states to the nine that are already there and basically double the number of states that have it. Right, and the thing of it is, is when people use that state-to-state argument, well, it should be decided in the state. When you're talking about 1,100 federal benefits 
that gay couples cannot receive, even if it is legal in that state, this should be a federal issue. This it's not. It shouldn't be decided by state. And and in the instance of like here in Iowa, where it is legal, if somebody a, a gay couple that is married here in Iowa travels to Texas, they can't get divorced. God forbid, you know, can't get divorced down there because that state doesn't even recognize their marriage to begin with. So. We are a, a country that moves, you know, as far as that goes. So how can it be, you know, if you, so you're supposed to stay in the state that it's legal and you can't move because your rights may be violated if you do? That makes no sense. Yeah, I mean, and I think, uh, you know, like I said, like everybody said, we don't know what's going to happen. But every time this conversation comes up, gay marriage gets more support. You know, every mm-hmm. time somebody says, you really support gay marriage? And I say, you know, are are they full, complete citizens? Do they not pay taxes? You know, what you know, what is your problem? How does this affect you? What do you care? You know, mm-hmm. you know, is it, do you really love the Constitution and freedom and liberty? Or is that just something you say? Or is that just something mm-hmm. you think is intended for people who look and think like you? And they can't really beat that argument. They really can't. Um, so let's wrap up that discussion. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more talk about that in the future. Um, I did I did want to thank our, our guest, Lad Everett. Once again, he's an awesome guest, Director of Communication for the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. You can find more information on Lad and the, uh, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence at csgv.com, or .org, I'm sorry. And Naomi, who do we have coming up? Um, quickly, we have Caroline uh, Heldman, who is the Associate Professor of Politics at Occidental College in Los Angeles. We have John Shire, who is the author of Tales of a Real American Liberal. And we will also have the Facebook administrator of the very popular We Survived George Bush, You Will Survive Obama, Mr. Liu. And I hope I don't mess this up too badly. It's, I think it's Carla Giovanni. Um, note that will wrap up uh, April for us. Hey, that sounds great. Uh, Yeah, lots of good shows. I hope you guys listen uh, next week and every week. Uh, Thanks again for listening. This has been Dan Bimrose, Crystal Kaiser, Keith Breckis with Naomi for Liberal Fix Radio. Be kind, have a safe weekend, and good night, everybody. Have a nice Easter. (laughs) 